0: There's never been a time in history when our audience has had so much ready access to so much quality uh, news and information. It's really a golden age in that respect.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by Dan Kennedy, an associate professor at Northeastern University, who's here at the Kennedy School this semester as a Spring 2016 Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Center. Professor Kennedy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So uh, your current research topic is on the future of newspapers. Yes. Now, this is a pretty well-worn topic over the last couple decades. What, What caused you to think now's a good time to take a step back and analyze where things are.
0: Well, what I'm trying to do is I approach the question as a journalist, which I have been most of my life, and uh, so rather than just trying to look at this from 40,000 feet, uh, I'm looking very specifically at uh, three newspapers uh, who acquired wealthy owners in recent years, and I'm taking a very specific look at uh, what they're doing with them. Uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon who bought the Washington Post, John Henry the financier who owns the Red Sox and bought the Boston Globe and then uh, another story that has already pretty much ended, uh, Aaron Kushner, a wealthy greeting card executive who bought the Orange County Register in Southern California, and uh, that experiment did not end well. Mm -hmm. Now, at the moment, I'm focusing most of my attention on the Washington Post aspect of that story, and... uh, and, and so that's what I've been thinking about quite a bit in the last few months. I've interviewed a lot of people, done quite a bit of research. Mm-hmm. Are there commonalities between the three different uh, newspapers? They, they've actually taken very different paths, which is one of the things that makes this interesting. Um, I would say that with the Washington Post and with Jeff Bezos having far more financial means at his disposal than, than either of the other two, uh, the idea has really been to get as big, as fast as possible. Uh, and they have really succeeded in doing that, uh, both through excellent journalism. Uh, the editor of the Post is Marty Barron, who Boston Globe readers certainly remember he was the editor of the Globe here for many years. Terrific editor, and of some it was in Spotlight, and and in Spotlight, yes, <laughs> absolutely, and uh, and some really first-rate technology. So uh, last fall, the Washington Post exceeded the New York Times in web traffic for the first time, and uh, earlier this year, they actually went ahead of of BuzzFeed by some measures. I mean, wow. the online audience for The Post is approaching 100 million unique visitors a month, which is just enormous. And uh, still to still to come, still to be seen, is how The Post is going to translate that huge traffic into money, mm-hmm. because that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are trying to get Some share of that traffic to become paid digital subscribers. Uh, They're using a, a variety of different technologies and incentives to do that. And they're having some success. But I think it's a lot like Amazon, where the the route to profitability is going to be uh, long and they don't quite know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Globe has been a very different story. Uh, The Globe has been throwing a lot of stuff against the wall to see what would stick. And a lot of this has to do with different types of content projects. Uh, They started Crux, which was a uh, website covering all things Catholic. They were trying to capitalize on... The, uh, the interest in Pope Francis. Uh, that was uh, a very good site, but it was a failure from a revenue uh, standpoint. Okay. And uh, in April, the site actually was turned over to its star columnist, John Allen, who is now operating it in conjunction with the Knights of Columbus. <laughs> uh, and it, and they're doing a nice job with it, but the globe no longer has any involvement with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a much more ambitious project is a standalone website called STAT right. uh, that covers um, medicine and life sciences. Uh, from, with the idea that Boston is a leading center in those fields, and so there would be national and even international interest in what's going on in Boston. Uh, again, very, very high-quality site. It's enormous. They've got a staff of about 40 journalists and 10 support staff. Uh, very big project. Uh, it's new, it remains to be seen how they're going to make any money off of that, although mm-hmm. they have some sponsorships. They're talking about charging for some of the content somewhere down the line. Uh, so uh, that may be uh, the route forward for them. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the Globe itself, it's it's been a little touch and go. Uh, John Henry has said that He doesn't intend to make money with the Globe, but he doesn't want to lose money either. So he's had to do some cutting here and there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The newsroom was cut a bit in the fall. And uh, probably the biggest problem they have had to date is that uh, earlier this year, um, they decided to switch home delivery vendors. And, you know, the print edition is still very important to a lot of people more than i would have thought being pretty much a just a digital reader myself and it was a disaster the the new vendor had no idea what to do papers went undelivered for weeks and uh, after a couple of months of trying to make it work they finally had to go back to the previous vendor so not only are they getting the co- not getting the cost savings that they had hoped, but the new vendor had also promised better service. Ha ha. Um, so the, the Globe had had to give up on both of those things. Mm-hmm. So that was certainly kind of a setback for them.
1: Now, you mentioned the Orange County Register. Now, that was an example that failed. Um, were, are there similarities between what, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the Aaron Kushner. Aaron Kushner. No, that was totally different.
0: And what Henry or Bezos have been doing? The the Orange County Register experiment that Aaron Kushner oversaw, and by the way, he's a local guy. He originally tried to buy the Globe and and was turned down. Uh, It was unlike anything anyone's done anywhere. Aaron Kushner uh, wanted to pursue a mostly print strategy. So... He said, We're not going to pay that much attention to the web. If people want to read us online, they're going to pay exactly what they pay for the print edition. Um, He even improved the quality of the paper used in the print edition. Uh, But, you know, it might have had some limited success, but Kushner was way too ambitious in what he wanted to do, and he didn't have the means to pull it off. So instead of making some modest improvements to the Orange County Register. Uh, he, he bought another paper. He started two, including one in Los Angeles. Uh, he hired something like 150 new staff reporters. And the revenue just was not coming in. Mm-hmm. So almost as soon as he finished building out his um, newspaper properties, he had to start dismantling them. And uh, it's funny, I was actually out in Orange County scheduled to interview him in uh, March of 2015, and uh, the day before I was going to interview him, he, he he stepped down, I think with strong encouragement from his board. And uh, in the fall, the register went into bankruptcy, and uh, it was recently acquired by another chain, and... and uh, horrendous layoffs are going on there right now, and uh, whatever hope people had that uh, Aaron Kushner might be able to revive what had once been a fine newspaper have pretty much gone by the boards.
1: As you mentioned before, Marty Baron, the editor of the Washington Post, he was actually here uh, just recently at the Kennedy School speaking um, to uh, the Center for Public Leadership. He was asked a question about basically the influence of digital on the newspaper industry. And he seemed not to worry too much. Basically said, you know, we might have to write things a little differently, but news isn't going to suffer as a result.
0: Right. Well, if you're working for Jeff Bezos, you worry a lot less than if you're working for almost any other news organization in the country. Uh, You know, digital has been an enormous enhancement to journalism. Uh, There's never been a time in history when our audience has had so much ready access to so much quality uh, news and information. It's really a golden age in that respect. Uh, But unfortunately, the internet has also completely undermined all sources of revenue that that we once depended on uh, to pay for that journalism. Uh, I think that 20 years ago when uh, newspapers all embarked on launching free websites, uh, not really a bad idea. There was a reasonable expectation that uh, you'd be cutting the cost of printing and distribution so your costs were lower and uh, the advertising would come along. Well, as it turned out, the advertising didn't come along. Um, Classified ads, which accounted for 40% of a typical newspaper's revenue as recently as 15 years ago, it's just gone now because of of Craigslist, primarily. You can't compete with free. I sometimes hear people say, well, newspapers should have figured out Craigslist first. And I say, why? (laughs) It's free. It doesn't do anything for you uh... and then the other aspect of that is that the the display, what what newspapers call display ads and uh... in digital generally took the form of banner ads uh... have become so ubiquitous the supply is so great that the value keeps dropping so uh... any hope that banner ads and 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 uh... and and other types of online display ads We're going to pick up the difference has really been diminishing because the value of them is so low. Mm -hmm. So what you see now, uh, and you've really seen a lot of this over the past five years I think, is that newspapers are trying to get their audience to pay for digital subscriptions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have been quite successful with this. Uh, The Washington Post is now racing to catch up. Uh, The Globe, uh, I I could have mentioned this earlier, but I'll mention it now, uh, is engaged in something that everybody's watching. They are charging a dollar a day for digital, which is more than anybody else is charging. And so far, they're having some success in getting people to pay. Uh, I think that they're asking a lot because... I people pay so much money every month for for their digital devices and broadband and cellular access. I think that they have a sense that well the content ought to be included in that. They don't think of it as free. They think mm-hmm. of it as look at all the money I'm spending. <laughs> right. But nevertheless Um, it's all other routes to revenue have been blocked for news organizations. So they're going to have to try to convince some portion of their audience to pay for the news. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are some encouraging signs. Um, I think it's way too early to pronounce that particular experiment a success. But I, I do think that newspapers have to at least try And uh, I I think that we all hope that they're going to have some success doing that. Mm
1: -hmm. News media is often referred to as the fourth estate. Uh, It's seen as a check on government. Uh, I think the rise of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders show that there is a great deal of uh, frustration over the fact the government isn't working right now. Do you think that has influenced uh, the news media in a way?
0: Well, it's very hard to talk about the media because who do we mean? Uh, I think that when you look at the rise of Donald Trump— Uh, I I wouldn't put Bernie Sanders in the same category. I think that's a very different type of phenomenon. Uh, But when you look at the rise of Donald Trump in particular, uh, you're talking about an enormous failure by cable news uh, especially. Um, He has had a pretty much unlimited platform to say anything he wants for many months on the cable channels and maybe that's changing a little bit now but during all the early months of his rise um, that that was uh, not the case and to some extent network television as well Uh, but then you look at other parts of the media what's interesting about this is that I think the overwhelming tone of coverage not tone, substance Of coverage regarding Donald Trump has been extremely harsh, extremely negative. Uh, I think that if you look at what the Washington Post and the New York Times have been doing on a regular basis, uh, we have learned all kinds of negative information about Trump's business dealings, about his university, and all these other uh, things. Certainly his outrageous statements about Uh, Muslims and Latinos and the like and torture and killing the families of terrorists. Uh, That has gotten horrendously negative coverage. I think that not only does it not matter, but I think that the core group of people who support Trump also despise the media in a way that this really truthful, substantive, and negative coverage only ends up helping Trump mm-hmm. uh, so so I don't think that there are so as I said I think parts of the media have enabled Trump parts of the media have held him up to exactly the kind of scrutiny that he should be held up to but it hasn't mattered if mm-hmm. anything it's only made him stronger uh, Bernie Sanders is a totally different case I'm not sure where you put the media in that. He does appeal to people who are disaffected in the, in some of the same way that, Bern, that Donald Trump does. There's been polling that shows that uh, Trump supporters number two pick is Bernie Sanders and vice versa. I, I don't mean to make too much of that, but there's some crossover going on mm-hmm. there. Um, people are certainly upset with how, the way... Uh, the current system is working. Yes, absolutely. whatever
1: the solution is to that, they want something different.
0: Absolutely. I I think that what is particularly interesting about Bernie Sanders is that a lot of his early rise came despite the fact that the media were not giving him a whole lot of coverage. And uh, I I think that changed later when when, uh, people in the media realized that the Sanders phenomenon was real. Uh, But early on, it was really social media and word-of-mouth and big campaign rallies that seemed to get the ball rolling for Bernie Sanders, Mm -hmm. and only later did did the media kind of tune into that. Mm
1: -hmm. There's a certain amount of confirmation bias that people seek out. They want to hear the things that they agree with. In the past, the news media has been, whether it's newspapers or television, what what have you, um, has been the delivery mechanism for information. But beyond just losing out on revenue, the internet has democratized information in a way that people don't have to listen to what the New York Times says or the Washington Post or Boston Globe, because they can find alternatives that have their own reporting or their own spin on on whatever, whatever it is. And in doing so, they've kind of uh, Labeled these these other these institutions these major news institutions as biased in their own right, uh, but how do news organizations battle that?
0: Well, it's not new. Mm-hmm. It's not new, um, and in fact, you can go back to the late '60s when. Uh, when, when uh, Spiro Agnew referred to the media as the nattering nabobs of negativism. And in fact, we saw a project that, um, that, that conservatives in this country engaged in for many years of essentially delegit- delegitimizing the traditional media as being hopelessly biased from a liberal point of view. And uh, I think that they were successful to some extent. And in some Subtle ways that I think have more to do with culture than politics. I also think the conservative critique of the media was correct in some respects, um, but it gets this distrust in the media grows with every campaign cycle, with every um, with 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 every year. Uh, we've had an explosion of media sources, and uh, the I, I think that at one time, maybe ten or fifteen years ago. We thought that we were going to be talking about hordes of citizen journalists. That didn't really happen. But what we have had is this explosion of small news organizations, many of them devoted to covering politics. There seems to be an endless appetite for that. And many of them combining journalism with a point of view, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, as long as they are dedicated to standards of truth in addition to espousing a point of view. Mm -hmm. But what we do kind of see is this um, sifting of that portion of the public that's interested in politics into getting most of their political news from people who share their point of view. Mm -hmm. Some of it gets quite toxic, Uh, I mean, you know, we were talking about Marty Baron. Uh, He gives speeches in which he talks about, you know, the the continued belief that President Bush had something to do with the attacks of 9-11, and that President Obama wasn't actually born in the United States. I mean, these things don't, it, it seems to be impossible to stamp these things out. But even if you get away from extreme points of view like that, you still end up with a situation where Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, I mention them because I see them on Twitter all the time, (laughs) Uh, you know, they they are tuned into channels of information Mm -hmm. that they are absolutely convinced that somehow Sanders is being denied the nomination see it on my um, Facebook feed all the time yeah I mean and you know you try to tell them well 9.4 and this is just math I mean 9.4 million people have voted for Hillary Clinton and 7 million people have voted for Bernie Sanders and it doesn't matter all they want to talk about is superdelegates and and you really see this from every spot of the political spectrum where people are are getting news from sources that are congenial to their point of view, and they don't want to hear anything else. Mm-hmm.
1: What happens now? I mean, once. By people the way, have Bernie separated... Sanders
0: is a fine person. I this is <laughs> this is nothing to do with Bernie Sanders, who has many good qualities, uh, as do all of them except for Donald Trump. <laughs> well, uh, no,
1: I'm I'm curious where you think that this goes after people have self-segregated
0: into these kind of these channel these new channels. Well, you know, I don't know, because th- by far the largest and most influential sources of news in this country are are still those that represent a broad mainstream. Uh, the three evening newscasts are f- draw a far bigger audience than anything on cable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the elite newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um command far more respect than any of these fringe news organizations. Uh, NPR is heard by tens of millions of people every week, and they're dedicated to trying to get the story straight. Um, so I think maybe to some extent we tend to exaggerate what some of the problems are because the people who are the most agitated are also the ones who are the most Partisan in terms of only wanting to hear their point of view, mm-hmm. but I think you know it could be that the majority of people are are, are still pretty mainstream in their choice of media and in uh, their ability to separate uh, fact from belief, mm-hmm. fact from wish. <laughs> I think in the uh,
1: in the two thousands, especially in the during the Bush administration, the media was uh, castigated for putting out um, this idea of false objectivity of, you know, on, on major issues, you mentioned a couple of them, you know, you could say maybe global warming would be in that bucket um, where, you know, they would, they would hold up a viewpoint of somebody who is not quite as well established versus something that is established. Um, that, do you think that still is a problem in the media or do you think that it's shifted away from
0: that and too much towards opinion? Well, you know, if you have somebody in your story saying that the sun rises in the east, it's your obligation to find somebody who says the sun rises in the west. That's what that's what an objective journalist does. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that the opposite of – well, the problem with the term objectivity is that it has come to mean the opposite of what it was originally intended to mean. Uh, when Walter Lippmann came up with the idea of journalistic objectivity back in the 1920s, I believe it was, what he meant was an objective pursuit of the truth. And he did believe, he firmly believed, that it was possible for a an honest, objective journalist to arrive at some decent understanding of the truth as best as he or she could figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then it was the journalist's obligation to present that truth to the public. So objectivity didn't mean some sort of artificial balancing of viewpoints. It meant pursuing the truth and if the original premise that you had in your head turned out to be wrong, Reject that premise and go with what you find out. That's what objectivity was originally supposed to mean. So I really don't see objectivity as being the op, I I don't see opinion as being um, the the opposite of objectivity. What I see as the opposite of objectivity, at least as we've come to understand it, is uh, independent, uh, tough, truth-telling in which you do pursue all aspects of a story. You don't just rely on one source or one set of sources, but you do try to arrive at some decent understanding of the truth. And this is journalism, it's not, history. It's not science. So the decent understanding of the truth that you may come up with today may be different from what you realize six months from now. But you just do the best you can to get at the truth.
1: First draft of history, right?
0: Absolutely. If that.
1: (laughs) Well, Dan Kennedy is currently a fellow at the Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center. You can read more from him on his blog, dankennedy.net. We'll have a link in the show notes. Professor Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks a lot, Matt. I appreciate it.
1: HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Laura Calaruso at the Boston Globe, and to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.